Hello, hello. Welcome to Archway's Conservative History Podcast. In this episode, we're going to learn about the history of the Jewish faith and its impact on Western civilization. Point of order. Western civilization is the culture, philosophy, art, history, and government of Europe and the Americas. It is often called Judeo-Christian civilization. This is in reference to the founding faiths of Western civilization, Judaism, and Christianity. These faiths formed the basis of not only our governments, but even science as well. These religions taught that there is order in the universe, all men are created equal, and that we are all deserving of rights, no matter if we're born a princess or a farmer. Thomas Jefferson, the third U.S. president and author of the Declaration of Independence, showed how important these religions were to our civilization. One Sunday, while he was president, he was walking with his red prayer book under his arm from the White House to the Capitol where church was being held. Along the way, a citizen asked Thomas Jefferson, You're going to church, Mr. Jefferson? But you don't believe a single word in it. Mr. Jefferson smiled, and he didn't deny that. But his response to the good citizen was, Sir, no nation has ever yet existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. And I, as chief magistrate of the nation, am bound to give it sanction by my example. As we learn about the religions of Western civilization, you'll see why President Jefferson thought they were so important. In this episode, we're focusing on Judaism. Judaism is the faith of the Jewish people. Christianity branched off Judaism. Jesus Christ and his disciples were Jewish. Archaeologists say that Judaism started over 3,000 years ago in the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. It is in southwestern Asia, in an elevated region known as the Levant. This region served as a crucial crossroads between Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Mediterranean Sea. It is a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. The Jewish people often identify Abraham as their ancestor and founder of their faith. One day we might do a full episode on him here at Archways. For now, though, it's important to know that he lived around 1800 BC. The Bible tells us he was a nomad, originally from southern Ur. But around this time period, the government of Ur collapsed. Abraham then relocated to Haran, about 500 miles away, and just a few miles away from the Euphrates River, in between modern-day Syria and Turkey. While in Haran, God told Abraham to go to Canaan, a land Abraham had never been to. God said that that land would be his posterities, and that he would have lots of posterity. This was a surprise, since Abraham was in his 70s, and his wife Sarah had not had any children yet. In exchange for the land and children, Abraham and his children would offer worship to the one true God. They'd offer their sacrifices to him, and they would mark themselves as his followers through circumcision. This two-way formal agreement between God and man is called a covenant. This particular covenant was called the Abrahamic Covenant. 
Now, a single god that reaches out in love to his children and makes covenants with them to bless them may seem pretty normal to us. But believe me, these were very unusual beliefs back then. Just look at what Abraham's neighbors believed in. In the land of Ur, they believed that the world was created when Apsu, the god of fresh water, was murdered. His wife Tiamat, goddess of salt water, was so upset that Apsu was murdered that she turned herself into a dragon and threatened to eat all of the other gods. One of those gods, his name was Marduk, he was so upset that Tiamat wanted to eat him that he ripped her in half. And one half of her became heaven and the clouds and the sky, and then the other half of her dead dragon body became the ground, earth. Now the people in Ur, they worshipped Marduk, as well as thousands of other gods. And these gods, they didn't want to help humans, or even like humans that much. These gods were selfish and mean-spirited. The people in Ur and other parts of Mesopotamia and Babylon, they made idols to try and convince these gods to be nice to them. They would take care of the little idols, these little statues, and feed them food. In some seasons, they'd dance with their idols. In others, they would actually sacrifice their babies to the idols. Abraham's neighbors to the south in Egypt, they weren't much better. Their gods were half-human, half-animal monsters who also acted very childish. There was Bastet, god of cats, Bat, a magical cow and goddess of success, Daumutef, god of stomachs, Fetket, the butler god, and like the people of Ur in Mesopotamia, the Egyptians also worshipped their many gods through idols. They would dress up and bathe their idols. They even worshipped their king, the pharaoh, as a god. They called the pharaoh the son of Ra, which literally Ra is the, the sun god literally the sun. They thought their kings were descendants of the sun. You know, the big yellow glowy hot orb in the sky? Yeah, they thought their king was, was that thing's sun. As you can see, these belief systems were very different to what Abraham and his family believed. Abraham knew there was only one God, and that that God loved and cared for all humans, and not just particular humans, all humans equally. And that God was a predictable God who could be relied on, who you could make covenants with. Now, because Canaan was a land dependent on rain for the crops to grow, when there were years that rain didn't come, Abraham and his family would have to go down to Egypt and talk to these Egyptians with their crazy gods. And Abraham had a really good relationship with the Egyptians. There are stories about him teaching the Egyptians astronomy and trying to teach them about God. Now, the Egyptians never really had a famine problem because they were able to rely on the Nile River, which was very, very consistent and stable. And so it worked out pretty well for the first few generations of Abraham's descendants to just be able to go to Egypt when there was a famine in Canaan. Now, Abraham had a grandson named Jacob, who God changed Jacob's name to Israel. You know, this is actually where the country Israel gets its name, is from this guy named Israel. So, 
one of these times where Canaan was having a famine, Israel, he and his sons went down to Egypt. And, you know, you might have heard of this guy named Joseph with his uh, many colored coat. Well, Joseph was actually a magistrate or a leader in Egypt. And so him and he convinced his father and brothers to stay with him in Egypt. And they stayed for a really long time. They stayed in Egypt for several hundred years. And for the first few generations, things were going well. They worked, they gelled really well with the Egyptians. Uh, but eventually, a king Amos I came to power. And he was the first king of the New Kingdom period in Egypt's history. And he lived about 1550 BC. And he did not like the Jews or their God. And so instead of cooperating with Israel's family, he enslaved them. And for decades, the Jews, they lived in bondage. Fortunately, God reached out in mercy again through his servant Moses. Moses freed the Jewish slaves and led them back to the land of their inheritance in Canaan. Moses performed many miracles and spectacular feats of courage and leadership to accomplish this great task. But his most significant feat for Judaism and Western civilization was in bringing forth the law. You might have heard of this law, the Mosaic Law, and a big famous part of it is the Ten Commandments. But there was a lot more to the law, and maybe in another episode we'll talk about the law and the Ten Commandments. So Moses got the law while he was leading the Jews through the desert Horeb. He had them stop near a mountain called Sinai. Once Sinai started to smoke and produce fire and earthquakes, you know, most people would say, oh, that's a volcano, we need to run. But instead of running, Moses actually climbed up the mountain. He knew that it was God up there, and so he climbed to the tippy top. And sure enough, instead of seeing an explosion of lava, the mountain spewed forth an explosion of laws. Yes, God's own finger wrote upon tablets of stone the law that Moses and the Jews were to follow. God also spoke with a thunderous voice to the Jews as well. And over several years, he gave them even more laws as they traveled across the desert and wilderness. Now, these laws upgraded the covenant given to Abraham, and they marked the moment when the Jewish tribe transformed from a collection of families into a true nation, a state. As a new nation, the Israelites were very unique. For one thing, Moses taught them that all humans were created equal before God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. No more would the Israelites suffer under a system that worshipped its leaders as gods. Another thing was God instructed Moses to govern with the consent of the people. When Moses first came down with the law, he asked the Israelites if they wanted to follow it. The people answered as one, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. When Moses passed away, God appointed Joshua as his successor. Once again, Joshua was commanded to seek the consent of the people before taking command. When asked if they would follow Joshua, the Israelites said, 
all that you have commanded we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we will obey you. And sure enough, they did. They followed that Joshua into Canaan and retook the land promised to Abraham. After Joshua died, the children of Israel were led by a series of leaders called Judges. Like Moses and Joshua, the Judges were spiritual, military, and political leaders all wrapped up in one. Eventually, though, after several, several decades, the judges appointed to rule over Israel became corrupt. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read that they took bribes and perverted justice. Under these circumstances, the children of Israel decided that they wanted to change their form of government. Now, just think of that for a minute. This is a very revolutionary idea, that the governed can just change their government when it gets too corrupt. Once again, you see that the consent of the governed is key for a government's legitimacy in the Jewish tradition. Now, the voice of the people told their elders that they desired a king to rule over them. Moses and many of the judges, like Gideon, were very nervous about appointing a king over Israel. Even God was nervous about it. God warned the prophet Samuel to tell the people wanting a king that, quote, solemnly warned them, a king will take your sons and send them to war. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, and he will send them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain, one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Close quote. Despite these warnings, the Israelites still wanted a king. And because consent of the governed was respected in their nation, the prophet Samuel found and anointed a king for them. This was in around the year 900 B.C. The first king that Samuel anointed was Saul. Now, Samuel made him very aware of the strict requirements and restrictions laid forth for kings in the law of Moses and also by God. Saul agreed to these conditions and for a time was a very good king. However, as the years went on, Saul stopped following the commandments of God and he became a very jealous and suspicious person. In this situation, Samuel was instructed to anoint a new king, and so he anointed David, a young, poor shepherd boy. But by the time Saul died, David had grown into a great man and general. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, all of the children of Israel gathered together and they swore allegiance to David as their new king. With all of the children of Israel gathered together, David went up and conquered the city of Jerusalem. This city was in a very defensible and somewhat central location, and so David decided to make it his capital city. And so from that day on, it became known as the City of David, and Jews have lived there ever since. And that concludes this short history of the Jewish people. And now you understand a little bit about the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian civilization, and how their beliefs and practices led to the governments and political philosophies we know and love in the West today.
Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about the history of the Jews, I encourage you to read the source by James Mishner. If you'd like to learn more about Jewish beliefs, read This Is My God by Hermann Woke. If you want to learn more about Jewish philosophy and its impact on Western civilization, you should read The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro. Other sources used in this podcast were the Bible, the Carta Bible Atlas, and the American Founding, its intellectual and moral framework.